How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. As the presidential election draws near, today we will discuss Republican and Democratic visions for powering America's future. Energy independence was the first priority Governor Romney mentioned in the first presidential debate. President Obama said that oil and natural gas production are higher than they have been in years. The two candidates generally agree on the direction, if not the pace, of developing nuclear power, domestic drilling, and other energy resources. Yet Republicans and Democrats have staked out very different positions on clean energy, the role of government in boosting new technologies, and the overwhelming evidence that burning fossil fuels is driving the weird weather. Over the next hour, we'll discuss energy in the election and include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in downtown San Francisco. We're pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts from each side of the debate. Donnie Fowler is founder and CEO of Dogpatch Strategies, a political and energy consultancy. His father was chairman of the Democratic National Committee when President Clinton was in office. Bob Inglis was executive director of the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at George Mason University. He served 12 years in Congress as a Republican from South Carolina and lost a primary election in 2010, in part because of his acceptance of scientific data on climate change. Bill Riley was administrator of the U.S. EPA under President George H.W. Bush. Now he's a senior advisor at TPG Capital, a private equity firm that has raised funds today totaling more than $50 billion. I should note that he also is a member of the Climate One Advisory Council and board chair of the Climate Works Foundation, the largest funder of Climate One. Tom Steyer is managing partner of Fairlawn Capital, which manages $20 billion for institutions and wealthy individuals. With former Secretary of State George Shultz, he was co-chair of a successful campaign to defend California's Global Warming Solutions Act, a pioneering climate law. Please welcome them to Climate One. Hmm. Bob Inglis, tell us how you went from a climate denier to a climate evangelist and how you got kicked out of Congress in the process. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, actually, people ask me if I believe in climate change now, and I say, no, I really I don't believe in climate change. Um, it's just data. It's not worthy of belief. Uh, my faith doesn't form my reaction to the data, but the data is just data, and the data shows that we've got a challenge. But when I was first in Congress in what we call English 1.0, um, <laughs> I uh, said that it was a figment of Al Gore's imagination, Donnie. You made some real hay out of uh getting after Vice President Gore at the time. Um, and then I was out for six years, out of Congress six years, and um, in that time, my kids started to grow up. And so my first, my uh, oldest child, was voting for the first time when I ran again for Congress in 2004. And he told me, I'll vote for you, Dad, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, and so I uh, had a new constituency that could change the locks on the doors, and so I... Um, needed to, to uh, respond to that constituency. Plus, when I got back to Congress, I got on the Science Committee and had the wonderful opportunity to be in Antarctica twice and uh, really saw the evidence and decided that uh, needed to do something. 
And then you were challenged uh, by someone from the Tea Party in the primary in 2010, and that was partly because of your stance on climate change? Right. I mean, I committed various other heresies, um, but, uh, you know, like being for some kind of comprehensive immigration reform, maybe, and, uh, and uh, being for voting for TARP and uh, being against the troop surge out of conservative concerns. Um, but my main enduring heresy was just saying that uh, climate change is real. Let's do something about it. Voted against cap and trade. I don't think it's the right idea, but um, uh, favored rather a revenue-neutral revenue carbon tax. Uh, reduce taxes on some form of income, shift the tax onto CO2. Um, but that just saying that it was real became a real problem for me. Bill Riley, uh, you were involved in cap and trade 1.0 in the early 90s when it was used to address uh, acid rain. How did it get to the point where a Republican idea like cap and trade has become political poison and people like Bob Inglis are pushed out of office? You may imagine I've asked myself that question. <laughs> we, we thought it was a good, solid, conservative, market-oriented, essentially Republican kind of initiative. And um, it, was, it was Democrats and actually a lot of NGOs, environmentalists, we had difficulty persuading that it would work. It has worked. It's been extraordinarily cost-effective. In fact, uh, produced uh, tonnage reductions at about one-tenth of what was predicted by the electric power industry and even even one-fifth of what EPA had predicted. The How it happened was, was suggested to me uh, by a conversation I had with a, with a moderate Republican senator. Can't be more specific, but you could, you know, there are so few. Uh, <laughs> that, um, who said to me, if, if we do this cap-and-trade thing for climate then people are going to have things like derivatives, right, and invest in that. And there's going to be a market, and you're going to have all of the associated uh, activities related to the market. Banks are going to get into it and the rest. And I said, that's right. Well, he said, that's terrible. That means a lot of people are going to get really rich. And I said, well, it it didn't used to bother people in your party that people (laughs) might get rich. And he said, no, but we're we're thinking now, he says, it's the New York banks, Goldman Sachs, and the rest. He said, "That's, that's terrible. I remember for the first time I thought that is an angle I had not anticipated that um, that to some degree the attitude toward, toward cap and trade was associated with the antipathy of the banks, which was very deep uh, in the Congress as in the country. Uh, Tom Starr, you were a co-chair with Secretary Schultz, as I mentioned, of a campaign that effectively defended and preserved California's cap and, ta- cap and trade program. Did re- other Republicans support that? Uh, or was there some well, was it divide differently here in California? If you'll remember in 2010, the um, sitting Republican governor Schwarzenegger was on our side, which was no on 23, mm-hmm. and Meg Whitman, who was running for governor as a Republican, was also on our side, which was no on 23. So we were, you know, deliberately, intentionally, and successfully bipartisan in California. I think the difference was we felt that the way to appeal to people on an energy issue was to be as direct in their personal needs as possible. And we saw that as being appealing specifically on jobs, on the health of themselves and their family, and to point out that there were interests that were selfish that were opposed to those two things. Did people recognize that cap-and-trade may internalize some of the costs of fossil fuels and the energy prices might go up, or did you not mention that? I think that uh, getting into the details of complicated policies in energy is probably not the best way to convince people about what's right. I think the way to do it is to stick to the 
effects on them and their family if it can't be understood by a family sitting around a kitchen table then i don't think you're going to have a lot of success in convincing people donnie father you have some evidence uh, you've looked at the, the tea party in uh we've looked at the tea party in florida that actually in some cases actually support clean energy uh is that for real well, you know, you started by suggesting that the four of us come uh, are divided left and right. The truth is that we come from different places. Two of us are South Carolinians. Uh, I know we have at least one Irishman and a Bostonian. Um, but what you have, in New fact... Yorker, hmm? New Yorker, Donnie. New Yorker. New Yorker? Okay. <laughs> it's all the Yankee stars, right, Bob? <laughs> the, the truth is that um, we're all coming from different places, but like the rest of Americans, um, despite what you read in the New York Times, despite what you see out of Washington, D.C., most Americans are pretty unified on their desire for a clean energy economy. Now, you can draw some distinctions. Democrats are super, super strongly in favor of it. Moderates are very strongly in favor, and Republicans are okay for it with it. But generally speaking, all Americans want a clean energy economy. So I don't think there is a, as much of a divide uh, as we read about or that we sometimes feel when you, when you look at the national media. Well, one area that in the political debate, especially. and one area that may be true is in at the state level, where there's actually a fair number of uh, Republican governors who support clean energy jobs more uh, than you might believe by listening to the the national political debate. I mean, Senator, I mean, Governor Brownback, I think you've had some experience with. You know, so let's talk about the state level. Uh, you know, it seems to be a, operating at a different uh, tone or pitch than the national political discourse. Tell us about. Uh, uh, Governor uh, Brownback. Well, I think he's an example of a uh, very capable guy that's also a very reasonable Republican who realizes that it's good for Kansas business and uh, that, that we have a risk. The, the science indicates a risk. Um, conservatives sort of recoil when you start talking about apocalyptic visions of uh, New York City going underwater. Um, but if you just talk in terms of risk, that there is a risk that's apparent, and let's move to reduce that risk. That's sort of the terminology that more fits with, uh, with conservatives. And, of course, I happen to believe that conservatives are indispensable to this conversation uh, because I've sort of seen how far we can get on the left, uh, and it's not to 50% plus one. Um, so we've got to figure out some way to get uh, conservatives to, uh, uh, into this. Um, the thing I'd point about what something Donnie just said, I think Donnie's right about those numbers. The only problem is that the people who vote in primaries, though, that's a very special audience. Um, and um, that it's a, the, the thing that all politicians want to avoid is, uh, is a primary because it's like a divorce. Uh, you know, it's the equivalent of a divorce. Uh, people who used to love you and tell you they were praying for you as they hugged you around the neck, are now wearing the other guy's sticker when you go to the county party meeting. And it hurts. And, uh, you know, and so uh, that's what every politician wants to avoid. And so they protect their right flank if you're a conservative. You protect the left flank if you're a liberal um, at all costs. Because uh, you don't let any daylight occur on either side. Um, and so that's what makes this such a polarizing matter. Not, maybe not the population, the general public. But politicians are responding to a very special public, uh, those folks that come out and vote in primaries. Yeah, there's two pressure points that he's speaking about. One is in the primaries where uh, climate change and clean energy have become a litmus test for Republicans, almost like being anti-abortion 
and uh, pro-gun control. It's, it's become really part of the checklist you have to go through. And so you have a, a very adamant group of right-wing voters who can control who the Republicans nominate. In Washington, the other pressure point is with the lobbyists and the big old-fashioned energy companies who spend tens of millions of dollars every year and are constantly in the face of Congress and the White House and the administration saying, you can't do this or you're going to pay the price. You can't do this or we're going to run ugly ads against you. You can't do this or we're going to attack you. And, and that, those two pressure points really scare the policymakers and separate them dramatically from where the American people are. Bill Riley, if, if you are uh, characterizing the issue as uh, averting climate change, dealing with global warming, I, I would agree with that. But I've had a fair amount of experience in Texas in the last several years. It, Texans love energy independence. They have more wind power than any state in the country by yeah. far, which they started to get under George W. Bush as governor. They uh, really like the idea of uh, alternative fuels. They, 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 uh, they do, and, and a lot of their companies, in fact, many of the fossil fuel companies are researching a lot of that. If you were talking about energy efficiency, that's They're all for fine. Oh, yeah. They're for that, too. Mm-hmm. So there is a language, I think, that is important to this and, uh, and, a, and a unifying way of approaching the issue. It's really important. It's, it's not that they're against clean energy. They're against an ideological kind of concept they've got of the kind of people who are talking about global warming and, and going right. to take away their cars and, uh, and, uh, and fossil fuels. But I think there's something else going on, too, which is the way that energy gets priced doesn't include a lot of pollution costs. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, it didn't include old-fashioned pollution costs in terms of you know, smokestacks, belching, you know, noxious gases. But it also doesn't include any cost for carbon. Mm-hmm. And so if you talk to people who are, you know, bent on fossil fuels, what they really want to do is look at a commodity price that doesn't include a lot of the costs. Mm-hmm. And they're going to fight really hard to keep that cost. I mean, I, I like to say we want the cheapest gasoline in the world and we don't care what it costs to keep it cheap. <laughs> and that's really true. People don't, you know, that is the biggest fight is to include all of the costs and get rid of, because people are going to talk about subsidies. Mm-hmm. Without, in, without taking into account the fact that basically they're going to take all their garbage and put it in your yard and say, gosh, it's really it, by, by The greatest story I've heard that makes Tom's point is, you know, if, you, if you're an American and you're driving down the street and you've just had a burger and fries, you roll down your window, throw the bag out, the, out into the street, the cop's going to pull you over and find you. If you're a dirty energy company running, driving through the American economy and you spew out smoke and soot and carbon... There's no policeman that's going to pull you over and fine you for that. You don't have to pay for that litter, even though as an American citizen driving down the street, you have to pay. That's the that's really the problem here. And that's, to your point about language and conversation, and to your point about conservatives, that's really how we have to talk to the American people, whether it's climate change or clean energy. Bill Riley, would you agree that internalizing, fully uh, accounting for the cost of uh, fossil fuels is a good idea? Yes, absolutely. And, and I would also agree that, uh, that finding a way to price carbon is where we're going to finally have to go. That's, you know, let's face it, the, the, the correctness of the analysis of cap and trade was it does, do, it does that. That is exactly what it does. It was called a cap and tax, but you are finding a way to internalize the cost when you have, when you have something like that. And uh, you're, it, it's the most efficient way to do it, 
but, uh, yeah. but that's what's involved. So even though you're on the board of ConocoPhillips, one of the largest oil companies in the world, would they agree that the cost of uh, Con- be internalized? ConocoPhillips was on <clears throat> a member of U.S. CAP. It was the only American oil company that supported uh, carbon regulation. So they're fine with it. And do they think that there will be a price on carbon at some point? Everybody does. That's the extraordinary thing, except, I guess, in Congress. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there is a CEO I know, and I also served until last April as chairman of the Environmental Policy Committee of DuPont Board. Um, everybody expects that that is in our future, and most uh, prudent companies are planning for that kind of consequence. And, in, in their, and I know that it's in, it's in the pricing at ConocoPhillips when they're looking at different investments that they make that something like a $25 carbon price uh, per ton carbon price is uh, is likely is likely inevitable. Well, Bob Inglis? yeah, I, th- I think uh, one thing to make it much more attractive to conservatives, we were talking about a revenue neutral price on carbon. In other words, if we're going to reduce taxes somewhere else, then you can price carbon. <coughs> if it's going to be just an additional take to the government, and that the we're going to, that's why I got branded cap and tax is because there was no corresponding cut elsewhere. Um, so conservatives are very keen on the idea we're not going to grow the government here. But if you want to do what Tom was talking about, which is just bedrock conservatism, he's a card-carrying Republican, you know. Uh, and uh, No, I'd like to sign you up. Will you sign up? Uh, uh, he's not, I don't think. But anyway, so uh, uh, but we'd like to, I think this is really a deliverable that conservatives must make in this process, is that we're the people who generally are saying to the progressives, there's no such thing as a free lunch, quoting the title of Milton Friedman's 1975 book by that name. And so because, you know, quite often in Congress, it used to be when I remember when uh, uh, the, other, the other side that controlled the House, so quite often somebody would stand up to speak and say, the question is not whether we can afford to do this. The question is whether we can afford not to do this. And, of course, all conservatives go, oh, my gosh, can you believe the person just said that? Um, but here, we're now in a position, we need to be the ones that deliver this news that we're already paying the full cost of coal-fired electricity. It's just you don't pay at the meter. We, we pay all right, unless you believe in the tooth fairy, Santa Claus, and there is such a thing as a free lunch. It's just not the case. Um, you're paying right now, the full cost of coal-fired electricity. Let's pay at the meter. And then you can have transparency and you can have free enterprise deliver the solution, especially if we do it in a way that doesn't grow the government, so that we either return the money in the form of dividend to population or reduce taxes elsewhere. Then I think uh, conservatives would say, yep, that's a tune we know. But, Bob, there's a hurdle that you got to get over. Yep. And people... A lot of people, most people, I think, are in the country in some key areas don't believe that carbon is a pollutant. And yeah. they don't believe that they are causing any of the climate problems that we've seen in the last few years. How we, how we overcome that, I think, I've seen polls that suggest that a third, two-thirds of the farmers who confront the weather vagaries every day don't really believe that there is a human contribution to climate change. And the same is said to be true of meteorologists. Again, <laughs> I mean, go figure. But... The, the scientific calculation that uh, mainstream science has made at least now for 20 years and is now being confirmed in, in more than computer models is just not accepted. But I'm can, sorry. Can I, I'd like to make a, a slightly different point about the way we're talking about this, and that has to do with timing. 
because, you know, I've been listening to people talk on this topic and in terms of the progress we're making, whether it's technological progress or policy progress. And in general, you can look over the last, you know, 10 years and see that we've been making incremental progress on both scores. And, you know, definitely the Obama administration has done the miles per gallon stuff and they've done the mercury rule and they've doubled the uh, amount of electricity generated from from renewables. So you can see real tangible progress from a technological standpoint, and we've made mm-hmm. policy changes in different states, including, you know, defending AB 32 in California. But the question that I've been asking recently to put in context both the technological changes and the policy changes is how long do we have before the climate issues move into a place where they become, you know, interactive, nonlinear, and kind of beyond our pulling back? And that's generally described, you know, in all of the literature and some, whether you like it or not, it's pretty, you know, consensus is two degrees Celsius. And so when you look and see the trajectory that we're on to get to two degrees Celsius, assuming that the, you know, and there's a lot of assumptions in terms of what policies change, how much development goes on in the rest of the world, and how much technology is affected, it really brings into question a lot of the conversations that we're having in terms of time frame as to whether we will be able to move fast enough to affect change enough so we don't get there. Because it, on the trajectory we're on, it looks to me to be, you know, relatively soon. And so as we sit here and talk, the question is, are we swimming effectively, incrementally forward into a stream that is pushing us back very fast towards the waterfall? And that's a question that I haven't heard people address and yet it seems to me that that question determines a lot of the strategy of what's going to be effective, a lot of the strategy of what's necessary in thinking about what we need to do politically and technically. We've had a number of scientists here who, who make that very point about tipping points. Uh, people look at the, the melting Arctic just this fall, some, some new lows, some very dangerous warning signs. Uh, but the science got politicized at some point, and and uh, a lot of people challenge the science. It's, it's, the science is very complicated, even for people who, who uh, are evidence-based. And so uh, I think what Tom is saying is let's bring the science in. Are we going fast enough? Bill Riley? We're not going fast enough. I think a lot of disruption, a lot of instability, a lot of uh, droughts and, and uh, unaccustomed events are in our future, unaccustomed weather events. I don't think there's anything now that one can do to avert that. We've, we've already seen it. Um, the, the thing that we can do is inject more urgency in our policies, move faster on clean energy, support, if, if we're not going to get action in the federal level, support renewable Requirements, electricity requirements at the state level. There's an initiative in Michigan right now to take it up to 25, uh, 25% by 2025. It's a big number. And um, it looks like it stands a reasonable chance of going forward. The fact that we've got 25 or so states that already have these requirements, I think is pretty, pretty positive. The automobile fuel efficiency standards are going to reduce by uh, something like 2.5 million uh, barrels a day in our imports once they're fully fully implemented. There are a lot of good things that are occurring, and because of the natural gas boom, we're, we're displacing coal, which is the, the most uh, high-carbon fuel. So, you know, I, I think directionally we've made progress in the last five years, and we haven't increased our, our greenhouse gases in that period. We've reduced them, I think, about 550,000 million, million uh, tons. Um, 
It's, it's not enough, though, unfortunately, to avert that and even to get to two, two degrees, I'm afraid. Bill Riley is a former director of uh, uh, administrator of the U.S. EPA. Our other guests today at Climate One are Tom Steyer, managing partner of Fairlawn Capital, Bob Inglis, former member of Congress, Republican from South Carolina, and Donnie Fowler with Dogpatch mm. Strategies. Bob Inglis, is the coal industry in its death throes? Um, perhaps because it was well, perhaps here, um, and uh, maybe it has a little bit longer to live in places like China, but because of what Bill just mentioned, the the, the human ingenuity of coming up with a greater supply of natural gas means that a very powerful market force has taken over here and has driven down the price of uh, natural gas electricity relative to coal-fired electricity. And so we're seeing substitution. South Carolina, uh, SCANA, our largest public utility, has just uh, announced the closing of six coal-fired plants, replacing them with natural gas. It's not the end-all because they, they hope to move on to nuclear after that. Um, that has zero emissions, um, as long as it's working right. Um, but um, and, and, and they, they do work right all the time. And uh, it's <laughs> case that they don't work right. Um, I'm a big supporter of nuclear, nuclear power. But um, but uh, so it's happening by market forces. And the thing that uh, that I'd point out that really helps conservatives, I think, uh, in in this discussion is if if we can say to conservatives, here's what we're doing. We want to make the market really work here. And the way to make the market work is to internalize the negative externalities, attach the cost. But also, why don't we do this? Why don't we eliminate all subsidies for all fuels? And why don't we attach all cost to all fuels? That's the, that's the internalizing negative externalities. And, and then let's make it revenue neutral. And then watch what happens. And the answer is that government won't grow. And we don't have clumsy government mandates or fickle tax incentives. We just have a free enterprise system that's working because people are accountable for their emissions. And that's that word accountability, it's, that's a big word among us conservatives. We believe in accountability. And so we just need to be reminded of the strength of our ideas that really we've got the answer. The answer is free enterprise. And the answer is well-functioning markets and accountable markets. Not this lack of accountability that Donnie was just describing, where you can drive through town without ever being accountable for your missions. That's what we've got. We've got to have a cop on the beat. Let's talk about the recent uh, presidential debate. Uh, One of the first things Governor Romney mentioned was energy independence. Uh, uh, He criticized the the Recovery Act, where there was $90 billion for clean energy. Um, I'd like to ask Bill Riley, was the, the $90 billion for clean energy, was that a good investment on the part of the U.S. government? Uh, I personally think it was, and particularly if you if, if you posit a $2 or $3 natural gas price per million cubic feet, it's very hard to attract private investment into wind power at this time, for example. Uh, it just isn't going to happen if you, if you remove the, all of the subsidies. I actually have a lot of sympathy for the idea of removing all the subsidies, but I think if you were going to do that, the analysis I've seen shows that if you did it gradually, you would still see renewables come on. They would come on at a lower, slower pace, but but they would make it. And I think that's probably a, a policy worth pursuing. So the president during the debate talked about ending $4 billion in subsidy to big oil. That's something you would support? Sure. Tom Steyer, do you, what do you think about driving uh, more capital in, into clean energy? Are the right signals happening there? Well, clearly they're not, because I think that the environment for investment in what I think of as advanced energy is as negative as I've seen it over the last five years. 
but I think that the difference that I see um, really does have to do with this issue of urgency and timing. And I think that when you think about bringing the market to, to bear of trying to unleash free enterprise, and you talk about pricing the externalities, which you know clearly everybody's eyes are going to glaze over when you use that phrase. Yeah. But when you start talking about basically taxing pollution, the question is the amount. Because at $25 a ton, the question is, what does that really impact? The diff- you know, people talked about cap and trade, and they hated it, cap and tax. But what it did was it was much more of a performance standard. We're going to allow this much carbon, and then everybody figures out how to, what they're willing to produce with that as a limit. So it wasn't technology forcing. It wasn't government picking winners. It was, it was just saying we can afford to produce this much carbon, and so you basically get to buy that carbon, that pollution usage. So actually what I see is if we're going to price carbon, the question is are we going to price it at a level where it will affect behavior enough so that we actually really change what we're doing? Because my strong belief is that we need to change much faster and in a much more you know, urgent way than anybody is thinking about right now. How do you do that without triggering a national or global recession? Well, obviously the... the Everybody knows that big rises in uh, oil prices and gasoline prices have been associated with, you know, the vast majority of recessions since World War II. And that's really why people worry so much about energy, because it's, you know, when energy prices spike, then the economy tanks and, we're, and politicians lose their jobs. So that's what they're worried about. What I've been saying all along is if we invest in the new technologies, that'll be tons of jobs, it will be actually really strong for our economy. We taxpayers? If the, if the American government make, pushes us in that way and makes it one of the goals of strategy of what we're trying to do as a country, mm-hmm. the, we, it will, in fact, be a huge jobs program. And we will, in addition, change the way that we generate energy in the United States. And we will avoid huge problems and also you know, create new industries. So I'm actually... I strongly believe that that's the way to go. And I don't think we have, but, but the difference is, I don't think we have a choice anyway. I think it'll be great, but I think the alternative is terrible. And the question is whether other countries are, are doing this faster, whether China's doing that and they're running away with some sectors, uh, electric car batteries, uh, solar uh, technology, PV solar, China's kind of uh, cornered the market basically on that. Do you see China as really driving forward and, and, and well, I think, you know, a gap from the U.S.? I, I know that everybody's very concerned about competing with China in some of these um, technologies. I see it somewhat differently, which is I see China and the United States as being the two biggest producers of carbon in the world. And actually, we, I, from my point of view, if they want to spend a ton of money and drive down the cost of uh, solar panels, I think that's great for us because we can install them much cheaper because I don't think they're going to make money doing what they're doing. So from my point of view... What the Chinese have been doing is, you know, they have 10 cylinders that they haven't recognized yet. And as a result, we have much cheaper solar panels. So selfishly, I think that's really good for us. In a way, they've created a public good. Uh, Tom Steyer is managing partner of uh, of Farallon Capital. We're talking about clean energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about fracking and natural gas. We haven't talked about that very much, but that's really, uh, in some ways, upending both the renewable energy markets, affecting coal, uh, but environmentalists have some some concerns about that. Uh, Who'd like to... Tackle fracking and whether that's really the, the one of the positive stories here of, of uh, affordable, cleaner energy. From, from a political Donnie point Bob? of view, 
and a public opinion point of view, there's two things to consider in this debate. One is fracking itself is a local issue. Most people don't have the threat of having a natural gas well that could leak in their backyard. So that issue, from a political point of view, is local. Natural gas generally is as popular with the American people as solar and wind. Coal and oil, nuclear are not as popular. But natural gas and solar are the two most popular forms of energy with American people. That's pretty amazing that the gas is up there that high. I, mean, I guess people like the, that cool little blue flame. Well, it the, seems cleaner, right? It doesn't blow a lot of well, smoke it out. It warms up your oatmeal in the morning. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, so, so there's, there's a couple of considerations when you're talking about policy when you say, well, fracking is a local issue. So most Americans go, well, and they're fracking somebody, they're fracking somebody else. <laughs> they're, they're fracking in somebody else's backyard. Doesn't affect me, but then there's the, wa- me. there's the water. Concern. And that little blue light seems pretty clean. It's cheap. Uh, you know, it doesn't put up windmills in my backyard or solar panels in my roof. I'm okay with it. So, you know, when you're thinking policy, natural gas has a real advantage in the policy sector and with the American people. I'll leave these guys up to the question of whether the science and the business models work with it. You know, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing particularly novel about uh, the consequences of, uh, of natural gas drilling or fracking. Uh, it's, got, it's got one large problem that's uh, just uh, inevitable. It's, it involves the industrialization of areas that have not been developed. And people who like second homes are not going to want to see fracking unless it's maybe on their property and it allows them to buy a bigger second home. But, but that's, that's a reality, and I think you either, you either accept it or you don't. That places, or at least some places, where there's a lot of uh, geology that, uh, of hydrocarbons, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, it's very welcome. Turns out it's pretty welcome in parts of Ohio and, and Pennsylvania. It's not welcome, I notice, if you look at New York in southern or eastern New York, but very popular in, in western New York. I think at some point the country could well decide that it's a local option situation. There are issues that are associated with the methane uh, releases, and we don't know exactly how serious a problem that is, in, both in the drilling itself and in the transmission. There's a, a very interesting body of work underway. Eleven companies are cooperating with the Environmental Defense Fund to try to get a handle on that and figure out just how real is it, and if it is, how do we, how do we control for it? Uh, companies, once they, they are told they've got to control for it, they will, among other things, it's, it's economic product. But uh, I think those are the two issues. As far as the, some of the other environmental issues, if you, if you know what you're doing in the oil and gas industry, you, you don't get the kind of problems, especially if you're re-injecting the water um, and you're not having a large residual and that sort of thing. You don't get the kind of problems that have been identified where you've had a fair amount of um, people go into the business, seen an opportunity, the, rain, the, 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 the golden pot at the end of the rainbow, and they have misbehaved and not really uh, because they were, they were not competent. I don't think that's a serious and endemic problem for, for getting the natural gas boom and continuing it. But let's face it, from the point of view of meeting our climate objectives in the near term, it's heaven sent. It's, it is displacing coal, and, um, and we now are, are reducing greenhouse gases in the way I described earlier. Tom Steyer? Well, I agree with virtually everything Bill just said. I just want to add a couple of points. I mean, he, he's absolutely right. There are the localized environmental issues which have to do with water and chemicals that seem to be, I mean, the studies seem to argue that they're controllable if they're regulated well. There are the larger carbon issues because methane's 26 times worse as a greenhouse gas than carbon. 
about when it is escapes, that if you're in doing this, a bunch escapes, that's very bad. But in general, I totally agree with Bill that in the short term or the, even the intermediate term, having natural gas replace coal is a good thing from an environmental standpoint if you're worried about carbon and greenhouse gases. The other thing that's really true from an economic standpoint is natural gas is not that transportable. So that what we see in the United States, that because of this new technique of getting natural gas out of the ground, it costs about $3 a thousand cubic feet. In Japan, the same amount, a thousand cubic feet, costs 15 bucks. In Europe, it's like 12 bucks. So because it, it, this is not now a global commodity, whereas oil is transportable, so there's some energy costs, but basically what we pay, Europe pays plus taxes, everybody pays the same thing. This is a local thing. So what that means for the United States is if you're in a business that requires a lot of electricity, or then we have a huge advantage. And so it's not just that we're going to have cheap electricity. It means that there are going to be biz- manufacturing businesses, chemical businesses, that we can compete in internationally that we couldn't compete in before because basically we're paying a fraction of the energy costs. Mm-hmm. So all of that is a huge boon for the, boom, boon for the United States. The issue is how lo- eventually it's going to be more, it's going to be more transportable because people will build you know, sometime over the next five to ten years, natural gas, they'll build pipelines and they'll build ships that can take it around the world. But and won't that lead to a higher price in the United States once they equalize the price between... The well, what we're, it, it will... Pro- I do think the price will go up, but, you know, prices are prices, they fluctuate. It, what will happen also is that this technique that has... The U.S. is the energy technology leader in everything. By the way, the government including this. fracking, right? Yeah, so this is something that we have a big advantage of. But the question you have to ask is, and Bill's right, natural gas is replacing coal. It's really driving out all of these old coal plants that are really bad for us. The question is, is it also going to force out renewables? Because in the, in the medium term and the long term, in my opinion, we have to get to a much higher percentage of renewables. I mean, Bill was saying 25 by 25 in Michigan. That's a ballot initiative in Michigan, and it's a hard-fought one. We need to be much higher than 25%. I think if we really ask ourselves where we need to be and we look at the time frame, we're going to discover that we're going to have to be a lot more radical and a lot more urgent. And it's actually going to be good for us economically, but it's going to be something that we're going to have to focus on in a way that I don't think people are prepared to focus right now. Tom Steyer's managing partner of Fairlawn Capital. We're talking about energy in the election at Climate One. Uh, let's talk about gasoline prices up to, close to record highs in California. Are they going to be on a... Uh, issue in the election, and how much does the president actually influence gasoline prices? <laughs> Bill Riley? Oh, come on. <laughs> Why me? Because you laughed, and that just no, too poor, easy. poor president, get handled a hand of the gas price uh, responsibility. Um, gasoline in California is sui generis. You may you may know it's because of the refinery situation and the isolation from for much of the rest of the gas market. Um, I, gasoline prices depend on a whole variety of things that uh, have to do with um, market variety, with weather, with all sorts of things. I, I don't think you can you can expect that the political process can can control it. What what we see is every time there is a spike in gas prices, people call for investigations. The investigations go on. By the time the investigations are concluded, the gas prices drop down again to some reasonable level. But I think there's no question that that we are going to see gasoline rise periodically to a new plateau of uh, cost. 
I think that's in our future. And we already, if you look at most other countries, uh, enjoy a significant discount to what uh, what they are charged. Bob Inglis, how do you think energy and gas prices are going to play in the election? Um, well, it's it's a powerful driver. Um, people are... Pain uh, at the pump. People get that. Yeah, it's... it's uh, uh, and, you know, in, in the pain of the Great Recession, when you have just a little bit of freeboard on your boat, uh, you know, your family boat, and then you get this wave of a gas price increase, you can really sink a lot of boats. That's the... Uh, I mean, I think when the economic history of this time is written, that's what's going to show what happened to the housing bubble, is that it, gas prices may have been the pin that pricked that thing um, and caused us to find out, gee, we're in trouble here. So, um, but, you know, here's the thing that I think, I hope that conservatives really hear about this, is they, they, they begin to hear that the, the tune on the radio is not actually conservatism. It's populist rejectionism. It's not conservatism. So if you hear anybody on the radio saying, for goodness sakes, you can't let the price of gasoline go up, conservatives everywhere, I hope, hear that and was begin to say, says who? You want the price of gasoline to rise according to market forces if you're really a conservative. If you're a populist and you want to keep the prices low, well, then that's, that's what they do in Iran, in Iraq. Um, I mean, we want to emulate them. We want to say, no, let the price be what the price is. And then we all learn from it and and enlightened self-interest and the liberty of enlightened self-interest, which is big for us as conservatives. We seek out alternatives. The the government didn't have to tell us to do. Um, Nobody ordered us to do. Nobody regulated us. Nobody fickle tax incentive us to do it. They just say, here's the price. Now what? Well, then I'll go buy some different technology. And we'll drive that much more quickly than government ever could. It's just an effective price signal. Um, but in the meantime, it's very painful. Um, and that's it, create, it does cause politicians to lose their jobs. <laughs> that happens. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> From one who knows, uh, Bob Inglis is a former uh, Republican member of Congress from South Carolina. I'm Greg Dalton. Other guests you today know, at Climate you, One you are know, uh, Bill Riley and Donnie you know, Fowler. Greg, there, there is a way to, uh, to square this circle to some degree. Uh, as we produce more and more natural gas, I think uh, we should find a way to move it into the transportation supply field. And proposals to do that in a way that uh, is not too disruptive of infrastructure, doesn't even require huge capital investment, might be simply to, to fix, set out the um, uh, natural gas refueling stations on the interstates and to begin to, and possibly use, you know, even consider a, a subsidy initiative to get the large truck fleets to begin to uh, convert themselves to use natural gas. Something of that sort, I think, would be a very productive work, you know, use for, for gas. It would, it, it would uh, for natural gas, it would displace a certain amount of gasoline use and possibly moderate the price. I've heard of a guy who has a plan like that. What's his name? T, uh, T something? T Boom? He came to see me when I was EPA administrator, 1990. He was already, he's, he's consistent. But he put a lot of money and effort and, and glam behind that. Did it really go anywhere? He's been out there talking about putting well, uh, gas in the truck. Five, six dollar gasoline might make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So prices are going to drive. Mm-hmm. But I think the other Tom's thing fire? people don't talk about in terms of gasoline is, you know, we have spent how many decades fighting in the Middle East and it's, we always say it's really, we're not really there because of gasoline prices, but 
you know, we for some reason are always in the Middle East and we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And that doesn't go into the gasoline price. I mean, that goes into our taxes, which somehow are unrelated to gasoline prices. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always say we have the lowest gasoline prices in the world and we don't care what we pay for them. Because we're paying for them everywhere else. We just don't want to, yep. incl- you know, we don't want to recognize it when we go to the pump. Let's uh, get the audience in on the conversation here. We're going to put a microphone up here and invite your participation. And again, if you're on this side, please go out that door and go to our producer, Jane Ann, uh, where the, the line will start. And I encourage you to come up with uh, one, uh, one part comment or question. If you need some help keeping it brief, I'm here for you. And, uh, um, <laughs> We'll get through as many as we can in the 20 minutes uh, that we have left. We're talking about clean energy at Climate One. Our guests are Tom Steyer from Fairlawn Capital, Bill Riley from TPG Capital, Bob Inglis, former member of Congress, Republican from South Carolina, and Donnie Fowler with Dog Patch Strategies. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our audience question. Yes, sir. Welcome. Uh, Gary Malaysian. Thanks for a, re- a very insightful presentation. Of the two presidential candidates, who do you think is better prepared to deal with the issues that you discussed this evening, and why? (laughs) Bob Inglis? Mitt Romney, because as a champion of free enterprise, I think he may have the Nixon goes to China opportunity once he gets elected um, to basically address energy and climate in a way that conservatives could actually accept, because I'm not sure, just as... uh, Perhaps no one but Bill Clinton could have signed welfare reform. Perhaps only Mitt Romney can price carbon. Um, And so uh, if that's the way it turns out, I think that uh, it could be a... uh, uh, Notwithstanding the current rejection within my party of action on energy and climate, um, I think that with market pressure for a grand bargain then we might have a shot at changing what we tax, putting a tax on something we want less of, which is emissions, and taking it off something we want more of, which is income. The New York Times did quite an extensive story on Governor Romney uh, and how he understood climate change issues, put a price on, started a cap-and-trade system regionally when he was governor. But even if he were to come around on this issue, could he get Congress on board, particularly the House? Would they just all of a sudden support it because it's not an Obama thing, it's a Romney thing? It's, it's hard. Uh, but and, and what, I'm, what I'm counting on is, and this is where I'm getting into needing help from people like Tom Steyer here, about the, the presence of market pressure. If there's market pressure, and New York calling Washington and saying, really, we got a problem. It's not a political rhetoric problem. It's that we have markets that are telling us you must do something about that structural deficit. If, that's, if that happens... Those, those are the conditions that make it possible for this grand bargain where, uh, where a new President Romney could say, really, we've got to do something, and could then perhaps bring the House and Senate along. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Welcome. Thank you for this excellent panel. My name is Dr. Peter Joseph. I work... Sorry? Sure. Yeah. All right. Who's, who uh, on the other candidates? The question is, uh, of the others, look, it, it may be true that uh, Mitt Romney can do the China thing. Uh, it might be true that Bill Clinton did the welfare reform, but Bill Clinton had all the Republicans voting for him. Maybe Mitt Romney would have the Democrats and he could pull a few, a few Republicans with him. That's, that's very true. But it's only if you put somebody like Bill Riley or Bob Inglis in charge. And I'm just not convinced in any way 
that the way the current Republican Party is situated and the pressures in Washington from the $150 million they're spending this year on TV ads and another 150 on lobbyists, I don't think – I think the pressure is too great in Washington, D.C. for the Republican Party to move off the dime right now. The other way to look at it on President Obama's side is that President Obama has a track record uh, already without Congress's help of doing tremendous public investments in the clean energy sector. So much so, that, Tom, I think you know this number. There are as many people working in the solar industry in the United States today as are working in the coal industry today. That's an important economic drive. And more in wind. And more so in wind. And when you so, President Obama, we know what he's done, and we know what he will try to do again. We have an idea that what Mitt Romney used to be, and what he used to be for climate change, and now he's against it. And you're saying maybe he'll come back and be for it again. I don't know. But Donnie, I mean, can, and let me I'm say sorry. this. I mean, everybody's aware that you know when he was a Massachusetts governor, he was pretty sensitive on this issue. But if I think you've got to believe what he's saying, and what he's saying is we need to dig more coal. We've got to be more reliant on fossil fuels. I don't know what this climate sciences are about. I'm not a scientist. So I get the point that in the past he said some things, but I think you have to take him at his word that he is going, that what he is saying now is what he means. And I think when President Obama is talking about it, he's talking about it in a lot more reasonable, scientific, data-based stuff. And I, I know the politics on this is powerful and pushes people a certain way, but I, th- I don't see how you can not... If you look at those two platforms, they are dramatically different. And if you are worried about carbon, if you uh, in any way, shape, or form, it's not close. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Democrat, although I am. And partly we're addressing partly only half the issue here. Yes, Bob, you're absolutely right. If Wall Street and the public markets say to the politicians and put pressure on them, you must change, that will help. But the American people at some point have to take clean energy or climate from issue number 12 on their list and move it up to issue number two or three. If you get a combination of the markets and the American people who are pushing, and I don't mean just the left. The environmental movement is an absolute essential ally in this, but they've been at this for 30 or 40 years, and we, don't, we haven't had this massive kind of change yet that we need. It's got to be more than just the left. It's got to be the markets, and it's got to be uh, the people, the American people who raise us on their agenda. Bill Riley? I think one of the very best policy interventions we've seen in the last few years has been the automobile fuel efficiency standards to take us up to 35.4 miles per gallon. That is a uh, really important breakthrough. And Governor Romney has, uh, has said that uh, he questions that and would reverse it. And um, I, I, um, I wrote a piece in the, uh, in the Washington Post uh, criticizing that. And, I, and I, I can't say I understand it because the automobile industry is, uh, it was on board with that, with that agreement. Um, it is true that when he, the one time he was in public life, his appointments were excellent. He had the head of the Conservation Law Foundation running his environmental agency, Doug Foy. He had uh, good people in other areas. And he did find, co-found Reggie with Governor Pataki. So that record is, is pretty good. He does, he's not exactly disavowed climate change. He's, he's, uh, he's joined the, the world of, uh, of people who are uncertain about it, its causes. Um, I think that, uh, probably, probably Tom's right that on a lot of these things, one has to assume that he means what he says. Although I, th- I thought I saw a convergence of the two candidates in the debate the other day. And, and one has to take some, some consolation from that. Finally, it seems to me that, um, 
a lot of the good things that are currently underway are not easily reversible. Uh, that's true of uh, the fuel efficiency standards. That's true of the mercury regulation, which will be fully uh, in place by the time a new president is sworn in. Um, that's true of many of the uh, decisions the Supreme Court uh, held, uh, held that uh, carbon dioxide is a pollutant regulated under the Clean Air Act. The new EPA administration is going to have to regulate. That's the law. Or they're going to have to pass a law that says it's not. I, good luck with that. So I, th- I think that there is likely to be more stability and convergence in actual um, approach to these issues. And I would be surprised, in fact, if, uh, if there any effort is made to unravel a lot of that. Yes, sir. Thank you for waiting. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for this very excellent uh, conference. My name is uh, Peter Joseph. I'm an emergency physician, but my obsession is climate change. I work with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby and the Climate Reality Project. Um, The folks at Yale who have been studying uh, Americans' attitudes towards climate change and solutions say that there's very widespread and deep support across the political spectrum for putting a price on carbon as long as it's revenue neutral. And so my question is, how do you explain the complete absence of debate within this presidential hmm. primary season of exactly that? How do you explain how both candidates have really shied away from the whole concept of confronting this obvious crisis, which we've been in now for several years very obviously in the Midwest and all over the country by using the power of money and the economy to get the job done. It seems like that's the biggest engine on the planet, and it's the only thing that can work. No offense to command and control, EPA-style stuff, but it seems like money is is the common denominator with all of this. How do you explain its absence from this presidential season? Thank you for that question. Um... No one's talking about it. Tom Steyer, why? I just, I, I, I know those polls, and I, we were discussing them earlier. Basically, 74% of Americans feel as if we should be taking action on this. I think that the question for, in this um, campaign season is a question of what Donnie was pointing out. Where does it fall in importance? Does talking about it threaten the number one and two issues, which are basically jobs and jobs? Completely agree with that. If yeah. you, you talk to congressmen, Bob, they, they will tell you they do not get asked about climate change and their position on it on the husting. They are not hearing about it from their constituents. And, and energy itself is very energy itself is very low down the list. Uh, we're we're hearing about it from the Republicans because they're using it more as a as a weapon to challenge President Obama's leadership. He won't do anything. He won't take the lead. That'll um, get us jobs. Yeah, unless unless he did something that they can argue, like stopping the Keystone Pipeline, that kills jobs. So they accuse him of not leading, except when he does something bad, when he's leading the wrong way. And, and can we talk for one second Tom about Steyer. Keystone? And, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is this. You know, people are talking about that as if we don't have the Keystone Pipeline, which is basically going to go from the Canadian oil sands, which is an area as big as Florida. So we basically, they want to develop an area that's as big as Florida. And in terms of carbon, just that development would produce more carbon than that much carbon would push us over the two degrees Celsius if we did nothing else. So this is a huge carbon issuance that we're talking about. 
So the Keystone Pipeline, which would go from the Canadian oil sands down to the Gulf of Mexico so that then could, the oil could be um, sent around the world, that pipeline, the way it's been described to me, would provide 2,500 temporary jobs while it was being built. 2,500 jobs. And in return for that, we're going to have more carbon that would push us over the area where all the things go base, are expected by scientists to go out of control. And yet, when people have talked about it, they've talked about it as if those 2,500 jobs, we are a 300 million person country, are more important than the decision about what the costs are going to be once we start to get into a climate situation. What's the cost of a huge drought? What's the cost of no snow in the Sierra? Come on, is that 2,500 jobs? I, I'm shocked, really, in, in terms of the, the way that that decision is being framed in terms of risk and reward. To me, the, the, the costs of that pipeline are so immense and the rewards are so petite that, you know, I don't, I really, it, it, it's a shocking decision to me and I have yet to hear someone talk about it in a rational way that anybody would think that that could be a good decision. <laughs> Let's have our audience question. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I'm Dave Masson, and I'm really appreciating the program also. Uh, I'm with Citizens Climate Lobby as well, like Peter and uh, Bob Inglis. As you know, we greatly appreciate your advocacy for a revenue-neutral carbon tax with conservatives and, uh, and here tonight. I wondered how you would answer, though, uh, Mr. Riley's question, where he wondered how you can argue with some conservatives for a carbon tax when they don't see carbon or global warming as a problem. How do you work that? Yeah, I think what you can do is focus on the health cost, mm -hmm. and you can <coughs> ask them, um, so we could divide the to total cost of, uh, say, coal-fired electricity, for example, between the cost of producing it, we know what those are, we, then there's some health cost, and then there's some climate cost. Even if you want to put a zero in the climate column, the health costs are substantial. They're real and they're quantifiable. And right now, if you got a lung impairment, stinks for you. Um, because 23,600 of us die prematurely each year because of coal-fired electricity soot. Three million lost work days. So back to Donnie's example, they get to speed through town. Stinks for you if you got a lung impairment. And maybe you die early. Tough for you. Um, and uh, you lost work? Tough. Um, we're making this cheap electricity. And see, it's real cheap. No, it's not cheap. Not when you include the health cost. So even if you stipulate, for purposes of conversation, that climate has changed a bunch of hooey, still talk about the climate cost, let's attach those. Do you agree there's a market distortion in the lack of accountability for those costs? Well, then let's put those on. Let's start there. Start the conversation there, and then maybe we can get over to the additional costs of climate costs. But those health costs are real and quantifiable, and it has nothing to do with climate change. It has to do with lung impairments. Um, so make these people accountable. Make, make all of us accountable for these costs. You know, biblical accountability says, I can't do on my property something that harms your property. Well, let's follow that principle. Let's say coal-fired electricity. Hold yourself on your property. I think part of the question was, though, you know, people who don't even acknowledge the problem. You've said before that some of the Republican position on climate is contrary to Economics 101, which you just talked about, 
Physics 101 and Chemistry 101. How do you get people to accept the basic... <laughs> Apparently we're not doing very well in our first year of college here, are we? <laughs> um, because we, if we are failing Econ 101, Physics 101, and Chemistry 101, we're in bad shape. You know, that's the call home where you say to mom and dad, things aren't going too well here. Um, but um, so, uh, yeah, it is, it is those basic things. I mean, that's what we have to reach. We're, we're particularly excited at the Energy and Enterprise Initiative about reaching to conservatives on college campuses. College Republicans, Federalist Societies, because we know those folks are taking Econ 101. And you can't go to Econ 101, whoever's teaching it, whether it's the most left liberal or the most right conservative, and not hear about, in, uh, about this strange thing to some people of internalizing the negative externalities. You, you can't go, you can't pass Econ 101 without understanding that. Um, and so, and you can't pass chemistry without understanding, listen, you burn carbon, uh, or, or hydrocarbons, you're going to increase the level of CO2. That's not that's not a theory. Uh, that's just that's just very basic chemistry. And then the way that light comes in but radiant heat doesn't go out. That's just basic physics. Nobody disagrees with that. Well, unless they watch cable TV. But let's let's, let's get our uh, next audience question. I'll be fast. Holly Kaufman, thank you for this very intelligent panel and clearly the brilliance of our moderator who asked the question I was going to ask about Congress since the election will also involve Congress and not just the presidency. Can you all please give us some homework? We've talked about things we need to do to address this urgency problem. We can't even really wait to get to the average two degrees Celsius. We've got serious problems today. So we've talked about prices and markets, and we've talked about the environmentalists who've gone beating the doors of Congress for 30 years. We've had business leaders of Fortune 500 companies and small companies go and talk to Congress. Job generators go talk to Congress. None of this has worked. We are going to need Congress, no matter who is president, to take action more than all the great things happening in states and cities. What can all of us do that we have not done? Re-elect Bob English? I don't know. Can we do that that from here? Donnie Fowler? Here's here's another story that I just love to death. And and I hope it's true, but maybe it's not. Barack Obama got elected in 2008. Everyone was very optimistic. Al Gore especially went to the president-elect and said, oh my gosh, here's the opportunity, here's the moment. Uh, What are we going to do about it? And president-elect Obama allegedly said to Al Gore, I agree with you, Al. You're right. We have to do this. Is, this is a, an issue of our time that we have to address. Now, Al, go out there and make me do it. Go out there and make me do it. And so the answer to your question is, what do we do? Those of us who, whether we're conservative, moderate, or liberal, what do we do is we go and we make the politicians do it. So... If you're a liberal, Bob's done a fantastic job of talking about how we bring conservatives to this issue. As liberals, we're sort of already here. We're already the converted. But we often want to go outside the church and talk to the unconverted using our own language and our own theology. The truth is that the American people don't think first about the polar bears in the Arctic. They don't think first about climate change, the first things that they think about are, especially now, jobs, the health of their family, and the price that they pay at the pump or on their utility bill. So as we as we as progressives think about how we go make them do it, 
we have to realize that we have to talk to the American people in ways that they will respond. And if you're a part of the clean energy industry, not the environmental community, but the clean energy industry, you have to step up. The clean energy industry is playing ostrich because they have been so scared to death by Solyndra's failure that all of them are going to get tied with it. They won't speak up. Let me give you some numbers. Barack Obama has received $78,000. He's raised about $750 million. He's received $78,000 in contributions from the clean energy industry. The dirty energy industry has given $13 million to the Republicans, Romney and the Republican Party, and a million dollars to Obama and the Democratic Party. So there are a lot of answers to what do we do, whether we're environmentalists, whether we are a part of the clean energy industry, or whether we're just citizens. We have to put money on the table, put votes on the table, put a voice in the network, and make them do it. That's what democracy and politicians will respond to. Holly, could, I, could, I, could I just, uh, I would just point you towards something. I've been fascinated to watch what happened in Chicago beginning in 1995 when there were 739 people died of heat stroke, twice what the number that died in the great Chicago fire in 1871. Mayor Daley got interested, assembled the scientific community in Chicago. They projected a future that um, was scary. Um, but could be, could be managed, and they began to, to, to try to manage it. They invented a new kind of permeable pavement because they expected to get to their water in a very short burst of months. They, uh, it's, it's reflective. They, the green roofs are very familiar. They're planting a lot more trees to cool the, to cool the place. They, um, they no longer plant three species of trees, uh, the Norway spruce, the maple, or the ash, the state tree of Illinois, because they won't make it in the new plant zone. They're planting Alabama sweet gum. It's going to do great. Uh, they, they're improving their emergency capabilities in the hospital. They're going to have uh, something like 45 days above 95 in the average summer. They've had 15 throughout the last century. They're, they're doing this in a very non-ideological way. Nobody's talking about what causes the problem. It's just, hey, this is here. It's already here and now. It's happening. They're probably going to air condition the schools eventually. Those kinds of responses, I have the sense... I used to think that's the back door. I'm thinking increasingly it's the front door to recognition of climate change and people's concluding, hey, this, this looks like it's real. We better deal with it. And one thing that gives me a lot of hope about American politics, and you look at the summer of 1988, um, we had an unprecedented number of ozone alerts, very high temperatures and the rest. All of a sudden, climate was on the, on the agenda. And President George H.W. Bush said he's going to be the environmental president, made committed to bring the White House effect to bear on the, on the climate effect. Um, that, that could happen again. It will happen, I think, when the scientific community begins to say that a series of things is not normal variation or variability, but in fact is a consequence of the kinds of things that we have been talking about. But Tom, sorry, quickly, then we'll get our last audience question, and here we have to wrap it up. I just want to make a couple of points about that, because obviously what Bill's talking about in Chicago is the idea of adaptation that basically we can't stop this, we're on this path, we're not, you know, basically the carbon is going to get released, temperatures are going to go up, and therefore we're going to take action to mitigate the effects on us. And I think that there are a lot of people who are coming to that conclusion. It's just, I think, my opinion is that an ounce of prevention here is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. By the time, you know, I always like to say, look at that tsunami going through Japan and adapt to that. Mm -hmm. 
when it really happens, adaptation is going to be extremely difficult and extremely expensive, I, I think. That's one thing I'd say. I'd also say in terms of what Donnie was talking about, it's not an... I, I talked earlier about the different arguments that Americans can hear and who they can hear it from. And, and there really are only certain arguments that will will move people and actually get them to change their vote and actually get them to push politicians. But the other thing that has to happen is organization. Because it's nice to have businesses, but as Donnie said, those businesses have to be organized in local places so that when an elected official from South Carolina is trying to decide what to do on a vote, somebody comes in who represents 15,000 working people in his district or her district and says, this is important to our business. It really doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. It really doesn't matter if they're in Kansas or California or Alaska. That's an important fact. So from my point of view, the other point is, even though the arguments are always going to be the ones that Donnie was talking about, the different, that basically in politics, politics is about organization, putting groups together. And unless you do that, you really can't expect your argument to be brought home to the elected officials who are going to make the decision. Last question. Let's wrap this up quickly. Yes, sir. All right. Um, thank you so much for uh, such truly inspirational leadership on these very important issues. Um, my question is, for the past two years, I've been able to work with other engineers and scientists on a new um, ultra, ultra inexpensive, high-efficiency and renewable energy technology. And my question is, um, how, what is the best way to approach the business community about an idea like this? You mentioned that, um, that right now the, the renewables market it perhaps isn't where it should be. And um, so I was just wondering. You need a VC, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I'll give you my card. Okay, we, uh, we have to end it there. Our thanks to Donnie Fowler, founder and CEO of, of Dogpatch Strategies and a Democratic consultant. Bob Inglis, former Republican member of Congress from South Carolina. Bill Riley, former administrator of the US EPA under President George H.W. Bush. And Tom Steyer, managing partner of Fairlong Capital. I'm Greg Dalton. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows are available in iTunes Store for free. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio for joining us today. Hey, Bob.